I wanted to begin our study of the minor prophets. And remember, they're minor only because they're short, not because they're insignificant. They're minor because they're short. But I wanted to begin our study with the book of Jonah. And we cannot say absolutely beyond a shadow of doubt that Jonah was the first of the written prophets. The reason is not because we have difficulty dating Jonah. It's pretty apparent when he prophesied, it was during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom to Israel. But because some of the other prophets are difficult to date specifically, we kind of have some ambiguity over who was first. But Jonah was certainly early among them. And I think he's an appropriate place to begin because even though Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel in the north, his message was not to the Jews, the Israelites, but to a pagan nation. And his message was evangelistic. And the book really is about uh, God's compassion and love for lost people outside of his own household. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about the background of of Jonah. And by the way, I put this morning on the back table some charts. One of them is uh, from the Chronological Bible, and the other one came from the Internet. It's marked uh, that will give you kind of an idea of how some of this fits together. But I want to just kind of bring together the circumstances for you this morning and, and put it together in time. Jonah, according to 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, prophesied predominantly during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II has the same name as the first guy, but he's the second for a reason. Well, because he was number two, but also because he's 150 years later. Remember, last week we talked about the two kingdoms dividing after the, the death of Solomon, Rehoboam, uh, took over Solomon's position in the south, but there was rebellion. The ten tribes in the north rebelled. The north and the south kind of fought it out, sort of like we did. And uh, they went their own way. And uh, in the north, um, they t- basically turned away from God. Well, that occurred 150 years before our message and story this morning from the book of Jonah. Now, to put that on a time frame so that we can kind of connect with it, Our own civil war in this country between the North and the South was 150 years ago. So you can kind of, if you know your history, you can kind of go back in time and think what was happening in our own country uh, in the 1860s and what was going on then. Abraham Lincoln was the president. Uh, The West was still being won, and and there was a lot uh, to happen in the westward expansion. we, we have a little bit of a connection. I actually had a great-grandfather that fought in the Civil War. Uh, I didn't know him because he died before I was born, but I knew my great-grandmother who was married to him, and so there was a little bit of a connection between uh, me and somebody that was in the Civil War. Don't infer anything about my age from that necessarily, but, uh, but when you draw that, that kind of connection and you go back 150 years, you can kind of relate it to, to where we are. And so you see what progress our nation has made in 150 years. You know, from, from, the, from the Civil War era and, and the westward expansion, look at the technology we have today, look at the modernization, look at all the things we can buy 
uh, look at our relative prosperity, even though we're in a recessionary time, um, we still are, are probably the wealthiest nation on the face of the globe. Um, we have all of these uh, things that are accessible to us and all of these blessings. And so, in many ways, we are kind of like this period of time in Israel's history. Because even though the Bible says that Jeroboam II was a wicked king, in terms of following God, he did not follow God. In fact, he did all the things that Jeroboam 150 years earlier had done, continuing the idolatry, continuing uh, the, the um, self-will and, and arrogance and going his own way. Nonetheless, God was blessing the nations of Israel and Judah in his grace. One of the things that, that we have sometimes a hard time getting through our heads because when things are going well, we think we must be doing everything right. But the truth is that God says it is His goodness that leads us to repentance. And sometimes when everything is going well, we might need to stop and say, is God blessing me for a season because He wants me to be overwhelmed with His goodness? Because I think that's what was going on in these nations. In the north, Jeroboam II was on the throne, and he reigned for 41 years. He was also somewhat contemporaneous with Uzziah in the south. And you remember Uzziah's name because Isaiah's great vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, you remember it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I was in the temple on the Lord's day and I saw the Lord. Why was Isaiah in the temple? He was there seeking God because a strong, stable king had died and he was worried about what was going to happen to his nation. It was like, Uzziah died, now what? God, we need some help here. And so Uzziah had been a great king in the south. Jeroboam II had been a great king in the north. Through both of their kingdoms, great stability had come and probably not since the time of Solomon had they enjoyed such prosperity. In fact, Jeroboam II had driven back the um, Syrians and had reconquered land east of Jordan. He had expanded the kingdom. He had stabilized the empire. They were enjoying tremendous wealth. Lots of good things were happening. And you know, in a time like that, when people ought to be grateful to God, they frequently forget God. And that's exactly what was going on in Israel at the time of Jonah. They, they had wealth, they had blessing, they had a larger kingdom, they had good things happening. And did it turn their hearts toward God? No, it turned them inward. They were thinking what great people they were. They were thinking they had most favored nation status. They were thinking they were doing well. And even though they had been making ungodly alliances with their neighbors, in terms of pursuing political peace, the truth is they hated their neighbors. They despised them. They were totally focused on themselves. They were thinking they were so great and so blessed that nothing could ever stop them. And uh, they were actually delighted when terrible things were happening to their neighbors. In that same period of time, uh, and if you can think in your mind now, do a little mental geography with me, okay? I want you to see the Mediterranean. You got it in your head? 
Okay, I don't want you to go sit on a beach somewhere and, you know, sip a cool latte or something, <laughs> a frozen latte. I want to, but think of the Mediterranean. Think about the Buddha of Italy. Think about Spain. I'm probably doing it backwards for you. Spain's over here, or the Buddha of Italy. Here's the Mediterranean. This eastern shore is the land of Palestine, the land of the Jews. And then going east from there into uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Western Asia, South Asia, you get into that area, there is Iraq over there. And in the northern part of Iraq is actually where Assyria was and the city of Nineveh. You can kind of get a little bit of a mental picture. And between Assyria over in northern Iraq and Palestine on the coast of the Mediterranean, Syria was in the middle of it. And Jeroboam II had driven them back a little bit. And Assyria, don't confuse the two, put the A in front of the other one, Assyria was in a period of decline and they weren't doing so well. And Israel could not have been happier that Assyria, one of their potential enemies, was kind of having trouble. And so it was the spirit of the time in which God had called the prophet Jonah to be a prophet to the northern kingdom, to preach to Israel, to call her to repentance. But in the midst of that season, we learn that God... In the book of Jonah, it opens up in verse 2. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, they hated Nineveh. But not only did they hate Nineveh and the Assyrians, Jonah could not imagine a more godless, wicked nation than the Assyrians. They were horrible. In fact, historians are are agreed that of the ancient peoples, the Assyrians were among the most cruel, most ungodly, immoral, vicious, violent people of, of all of that period of time. They were merciless in their military campaigns. I mentioned some of the things in my outline that I could actually print. There was a lot more I could have said that I didn't even put in print that they did to their enemies. They they were heartless people. They seemed to be sadistically pleasured by inflicting cruelty. They were immoral and and they were filled with vice and, and, and just purely out for themselves. They had a temple to Ishtar in the city of Nineveh. And and part of their celebration among the pagan idols was celebrating the goddess Ishtar, who was the goddess of fertility. They would have the spring celebrations when spring would come and the earth would kind of be reborn and blossom out. 
the goddess Ishtar was celebrated down into uh, Roman, uh, through Greek and Roman history, down into the times of Jesus. In fact, uh, I've kind of given up on changing the name of Easter to Resurrection Sunday because it's just so hard to get takers for that. <laughs> you know, people uh, don't understand my aversion to the word Easter. But our word Easter comes from Ishtar. And it means the celebration, the spring celebration of the goddess of fertility. Think bunnies and eggs. Where does all that fit in? Well, it has nothing to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has to do with Ishtar. And so, uh, I'm far off of Jonah here for a moment, but that's why I like to call it Resurrection Sunday instead of Easter Sunday, because I'm, I'm really not thrilled about the heritage. And when the, the church in, the, in the, uh, Rome kind of looked at it and said, well, they're all out having fun celebrating Ishtar, why don't we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus at this time? And so the church decided that that would be the season, uh, along with Passover, it all kind of fit together. We'll just celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus. But guess what name stuck? It was the Roman pagan holiday, not the church's celebration of resurrection. So anyway, that's, that's an aside. But uh, Assyria was into all kinds of wickedness and immorality. And Jonah really was kind of hoping that judgment would fall on Nineveh and God would wipe them out entirely. That's what he wanted. And so when the call of God came to him, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it because their wickedness has come, the Scripture says Jonah went down to Joppa, found a boat that was going to Tarshish and headed in the other direction. Now, if you... Take the, the historians at face value for where they say the Hebrew Tarshish compares to the word Tarsus, which was in southern Spain. Think back into that geography for a moment. Nineveh is 500 miles to the east in northern Iraq. And Tarsus is further than that west at the other end of the Mediterranean. It's as far as you can go and still be on the continent of Europe. And so when the call of God comes to go 500 miles inland to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Joppa, finds a boat that's going as far as he can go in the other direction. And he says, that's where I'm headed. And he gets on the boat, goes down into the hold, makes himself a nice pallet, Running from the presence of God, he goes to sleep. How many of you think you can run from the presence of God? Remember what David said, Psalm 139? <laughs> Lord, if I go to the mountains, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. You know what I'm thinking before I think it myself. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you even know the hairs on my head. There's nothing I can do to get away from your presence. Jonah didn't know that. You know, he should have, because David wrote it before he was born. But anyway, it didn't dawn on him, and he thinks he's going to run from the presence of God. So he gets on this boat, and, and they head out to sea. And the Scripture says, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit of chapters 1 and 2 for you, but 
the bottom line of what happened was this storm comes up, and uh, all the sailors realize the ship is about to break up. It's about to break apart. So they start praying to all their gods. And they're all crying out to their gods, and they're starting to throw cargo overboard, you know. And in the midst of all of this uh, confusion and chaos and all, every kind of prayer and ritual you can imagine is going on, they find Jonah sleeping in the hull of the ship. And they wake him up, and they say, Jonah... What are you doing, man? Call out to your God. We need all the help we can get. Surely there's got to be a God in heaven that will help us. And in the midst of all this praying, they decide, I think like a lot of us, bad things have happened. Who caused it? And so they decide they're going to cast lots and figure out who the bad guy is. Who's brought all this upon us? And when they cast the lots, Jonah is picked. Now, don't let that throw you. Next time you need to find out the will of God or get an answer, I do not recommend casting lots. But I just want you to know in passing that God can use anything to get His point across. And in the lots, God sovereignly orchestrated that so that the finger was on Jonah. And they came to Jonah and they said, What is the meaning of this? What are you doing? How could you do this? Verse 10 for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of God because Jonah had told them. And they said to him, Jonah, what can we do to, to avert this disaster? And Jonah says, throw me overboard. You know, you talk about a guy with kind of a death wish. I mean, if he can't get away, just let me die. And so Jonah says, throw, us, throw me overboard. And they don't want to do this. For one thing, you know, some reality is dawning here. They've all been praying, but the storm is still howling. They start to do the math, and they realize that Jonah's God is more powerful than their God's because it's still storming. And Jonah and God is pretty upset with Jonah. <laughs> so some repentance is beginning to occur. They begin to develop some fear of God. You can read that in the passages. And they don't want to throw Jonah overboard, <laughs> so they try to row out of the difficulty. But they can't do it. And finally, notice the prayer of these pagan guys as they rowed desperately, verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, but do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. In other words, they didn't want to die, but they didn't want to throw Jonah overboard either because they knew he was a prophet. So they pray, spare us, but don't hold us responsible for Jonah. Because obviously you're doing your thing here. And they came and got Jonah and they threw him overboard. And when Jonah is sinking, <laughs> all kinds of things are going through his mind. You know, it's one thing to want to die. But it's another thing to come to the moment of death, and it's actually happening. And it's like, wait a minute. Um, some, things just rise up inside of us that say we want to live. And so Jonah is sinking into the sea, and the Scripture says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, in the fish, Jonah prays a prayer. And if ever there is a foxhole religion prayer, this one is it. You've know, you got to get the setting. Jonah was drowning. 
Okay, you know, you, you read this and it's, it's what he says. I called out of my distress to the Lord. He answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The current engulfed me. The breakers and billows went over me. I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Are you getting the picture? This guy's going down. He's getting tangled in the seaweed. He knows he's not coming up again. He's in big trouble. I descended to the roots of the mountains. That's poetic speak for about as low as you can go. The earth with its bars was around me, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord. When my soul was fainting away within me, I remembered the Lord, and in my prayer I came to thee in thy holy temple. Jonah is praying this from inside the belly of this fish. Because God sent the fish, and all of these things going through his mind, God sent the fish to swallow him up. And Jonah comes too. But get the scene. How much light do you think there is in the belly of a whale? None. It's dark. It's pitch black. There's this air bubble. God has revived Jonah. He can breathe. But what is he breathing? Gastric juices. Stomach acids. All kinds of slimy seaweed and who knows what sloshing around in the dark. I mean, Jonah, if he's got a brain in his head, is terrified. What, an, what a horrible place to be. And, and basically, he says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I'm going to come back to that verse in a minute because the New International Version translates it differently and I think perhaps better. But he says, verse 9, I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. What do you think Jonah prayed? That which I have vowed I will pay. What would you pray? Get me out of here. God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll do whatever. Just get me out of here and you can do whatever you want. It's amazing how clear things become when you're right at death's door. And in, in, in for Jonah in that putrid, smelly, warm, ugh, what a horrible place. Get me out of here. That's not what he had in mind when he said, throw me overboard. And so God causes the fish to vomit him up on the shore. Isn't that just full of gore? I mean, just, just think about it. You know, the fish comes up, and Jonah's dumped out on the beach. Now, we don't know how much time elapsed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Did God allow him to recover for a period of time? Possibly. We're not, we're not told any of the details of that. But at some point in time, the word of the Lord, chapter 3, it's just like chapter 1. It's almost verbatim. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Joppa to board a ship to Tarshish. Uh-uh. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He got the message. He was going to follow God this time. He kept his promise. He said, you get me out of this, I'll go. God's voice came to him and he went. Now, when Jonah gets to Nineveh, God's message to him, the message that he's to tell the Ninevites, the Assyrians is, God has seen your wickedness. And in 40 days, he is going to destroy this city. But he loves you and he wants you to repent. And if you repent, God may spare you. Now, I want you to turn over to the fourth point in my outline if you're following that. I want to jump ahead here for a little bit. Because God has been preparing Nineveh. The history books tell us that in 765 B.C., a serious plague and famine came into that northern region and affected the city. And the city experienced not only plague, but famine, and thousands died. Two years later, there was a total solar eclipse, June 15, 1763, the city goes black in the middle of the daytime. Ancient people didn't have that all figured out. They didn't put little pinholes in boxes like we do and go out and try to see the eclipse. They had no idea what was going on. The city went black. Four years later, another plague comes through and another famine. I mean, this place is being seriously rocked. And all kinds of things are happening. And then Jonah shows up. And we don't have any idea what Jonah might have looked like. But let me tell you, he could have potentially been one scary dude. And the reason I say that is because in about the 1850s, there were some sailors on a whaling vessel off the Falcon Islands. And uh, they put in the little harpoon boat to send some guys out to, to harpoon the whale. And uh, two of them got thrown overboard in the, in the process. One of them drowned. They recovered his body. The other one just disappeared. They had no idea what happened to him. They finally harpooned the whale. They pulled him back toward the ship. Uh, they started harvesting the blubber and all that kind of stuff. And when they uh, got things pared down a bit, they pulled the, the basic carcass of the whale on, onto the board of the ship. And they noticed this spasming thing kind of flailing around inside the, the whale's stomach. And so they cut open the stomach, and here's the missing sailor. He's unconscious, but he's kind of, you know, having these fits, and so they drag him out onto the deck of the boat, and they throw a bucket of seawater over him, and he kind of comes to, you know, and he survived the ordeal. In fact, the, the sailors that observed this said he... He was not unconscious from lack of oxygen because there was sufficient air in the bubble of the belly of the thing that he could have survived that he had passed out from sheer terror. 
But when he came through this ordeal, his skin was bleached almost white because of the acid environment of the stomach. So we have no idea what Jonah looked like, but he could have been pretty scary. So now this, this city has had these famines, these plagues, this eclipse, and now this guy's coming into town looking like who knows what, a prophet from Israel. Their arch enemy. And he's coming into town proclaiming a message of repentance. Let me tell you, it got their attention. They listened. Look what the Scripture says in chapter 3, verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Everybody. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, who was the king of Assyria... He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let them call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring on them, And he did not do it. Nineveh had a revival. And when Nineveh turned to God from the king down to the lowest guy on the totem pole, when when Nineveh had this this revival and they turned to God, God relented and, and turned away from his wrath that he had promised and spared the city. Friends, One of the things that we need to take away from this lesson this morning, this message, is that whenever God sends us to speak to someone in His name, He has already been preparing the heart. He has already been at work. The Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. But witnessing to the work of Jesus Christ is what we do in the power of the Spirit. But the internal work of calling the heart to repentance, making people aware of their sin, awakening them to the love of God, all of those things that go on inside that lead to conversion and and repentance and turning toward God. That's the work of God. And we need to recognize that when God sends us with a message to go to a people, that He is already at work in the people's life. Is there someone you're praying for? Is there someone you're burdened for to come to Christ? Is there someone that uh, God has put on your heart? Do you sense Him at times saying, speak to this one Give my word to that person. Now is the day to witness and share with so-and-so. 
Do you ever have that kind of sensation? You don't need to be afraid. God is at work. He's already preparing. He's already working. The very fact that you have a burden and you're being motivated in that way proves God's love for that individual. And if ever we doubted God's love for for lost people, it should be abundantly clear in the message of Jonah and the revival at Nineveh. There couldn't have been a more wicked, violent, ugly, wretched crowd than the Assyrians. And yet, God did not want to destroy them. He was ready to. He was willing to judge, and one day he will judge the wicked. He was prepared, but he wanted to give them an opportunity because he loved them. Friends, this afternoon, we may be sharing with people as we bless them and minister to them in the name of the Lord. We may be sharing with people that are under the judgment of God. The day will come unless they turn that they will experience the wrath of God. And God is giving them opportunity. God is giving them a chance. God works in that way. He is always calling out to the ungodly. In fact, the scripture says, It is not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. That's His desire. The Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. The Old Testament prophet said uh, from the mouth of God, He by no means takes delight in the punishment of the wicked. God hates the punish. He's willing to. His holiness demands it. But His heart is such that He doesn't want to. He wants people to turn. He wants people to come and and be saved. He wants people to repent and and come back to Him. That's His heart's desire. And if ever there were proof of it, it's in this book of Jonah as he goes to the most godless nation of his day, to the most wicked capital city of that godless nation. Judgment is coming in 40 days. This city is going to be destroyed unless you repent and turn to God. And God has mercy on them. And in the proclamation of the message, Nineveh repents and turns to the Lord. Notice chapter 4 in the book of Jonah. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, See, please, Lord, Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O God, please take my life from me, For death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. Jonah's reaction was rather strange for a revivalist. The whole city comes to repentance 
And Jonah is angry with God. I knew this would happen. I know you're a God (coughs) full of (coughs) compassion and loving kindness. I knew it. I just knew it. Now look at these people. You notice what Jonah does? He goes east of Nineveh. What direction did he go to get to Nineveh? East, 500 miles. You notice he doesn't go back toward Israel. (laughs) He doesn't ever want to be seen there again. He's the guy that brought revival to the Assyrians. Now they're going to last for another who knows how long. He has no intention of going home. He goes to the other side. He says, I'm going to sit down and and wait and see what happens. Well, revival is what happened. God spared the, the town. The whole place was converted, it sounds like. There was a major turning to God. Jonah is so aggravated. Friends, right here, we need to also take a lesson from this. In this world, it is not important what nation we're a part of. It is important whether or not we know God through Jesus Christ. And, you know, the tendency of the Jews of Jonah's day was to think, we are it, man. We're blessed. We must be doing everything right. They were under the judgment of God, too. They were not following the Lord. The northern kingdom in particular was a godless nation bent on idolatry and self-will. And their time was coming. Those same Assyrians were not too far off from coming to be the judge of Israel. Maybe Jonah knew that. Maybe Jonah had no desire to see this wicked nation turn to God. Friends, we have no reason as followers of Jesus Christ to get hung up on national pride. Did you know that God loves Muslims this morning? God loves Islamic terrorist. He doesn't want anyone to perish. God even loves Osama bin Laden if he's still hanging out somewhere. God loves the Jews. God loves the Africans. God loves the Chinese. God wants all men and women everywhere to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and be saved. We cannot afford to be so nationalistic in our thinking that we forget our mission is to share the love of God with everyone that God gives the opportunity. Did you know that there is a revival going on right now in Islam? That throughout the Middle East, where the gospel has been faithfully proclaimed by missionaries, and they've heard the name of Jesus, did you know that that in place after place, Muslims are having dreams and visions in the night 
that Jesus is Messiah, that he is the Savior, and they are coming to faith in Christ. They're becoming converted. They're following Jesus Christ. He is doing among them an amazing thing. Missionaries are telling stories, and Joel Rosenberg has recently written a new book, the, the, the Secret Revival that is going on inside of Islam. Friends, we cannot take sides in this world. We are those who are of a kingdom that is not of this world. And in the final analysis, there are only two kinds of people. Those who know the Lord through Jesus Christ and those who don't. And we are under a divine mandate to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to see color or nation or race or language. We cannot allow that to enter our thinking. Because God loves people. And Jesus died to save them. It's interesting what Jonah did when he went out east of the city and made a shelter for himself and sat in the shade so he could see what would happen. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah's head to be a shade over him, to deliver him from his discomfort. Remember, this is the desert areas of northern Iraq that uh, Jonah is parked. And he's out in the sun. And so this plant grows up overnight and comes up over his shelter and shades him. And then Jonah had to be thinking, wow, this is pretty neat. God made this plant just poof, popped up like, you know, ever see, see the movie Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, and the stalk goes like that. Well, here's this plant, and, and, and it's just fantastic. And then it says, then God appointed a worm. And when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant, and the plant died. One day it's there, one day it's gone. And Jonah's looking at this thing, and it says, When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head. The same one that was bleached out in the whale's belly. And he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death's better than life. Jonah's got this death wish. It just keeps coming up throughout the book, you know. He gets upset with God. He just wants to die. And God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Now, he already asked him about the city. Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about Nineveh? Jonah didn't answer. Well, he said, Yeah, I've got plenty of reason to be angry. But now God says, Do you have reason to be angry about the plant? And he says, I have good reason to be angry. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And you say, what's that got to do with anything? Well, apparently Jonah was very grateful for the plant. He was very sad for the plant when the worm killed it. That plant had meaning to Jonah. It had value. It was special. It had been a blessing to him. And God says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, 
in which are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left, as well as many animals. In other words, what God is saying is, Jonah, the people in Nineveh were made in my image. They bear my likeness. They have eternal souls. I love them. I care about them. Shouldn't I care about them? Do you not understand my heart for this people that really are the work of my hands? You have no reason to be angry because I spared what I valued. Just like you wanted to spare what you valued. There's an object lesson there. And... and Scholars are somewhat in disagreement about what this term 120,000 persons who don't know their left from their right mean. You know, sometimes we, we use that as a derisive comment. Good grief, you don't even know your left from your right. You know, we, we use that. And it could be that, that God was saying these people were just blind and ignorant. But some biblical interpreters think that it's referring to infants who haven't learned yet. And that there was 120,000 infants who didn't, weren't old enough to know the difference, implying that the city was 600, 700 or more thousand people. It was a large city. In fact, we were told in the book in one place that it was a three days walk. And, and one of the Old Testament scholars said even though the city of Nineveh would not have been a three day walk, with the suburbs and surrounding area, if it were a city of uh, six, seven hundred thousand people, it could very easily have taken three days to, to walk across it while preaching. In fact, if you think of Rockford, it's about the size of Rockford, perhaps a little larger. If you started in Belvedere and started walking across from Belvedere across Rockford, preaching the, the gospel, uh, it, it could take you every bit of three days, if not more. And so here's this huge city, a great city. And God says, I love the city, and I love the people, and I don't want to bring judgment. What are some of the lessons that we can take away from this? Well, one of the things that perhaps goes without saying is, if God tells you to do something in no uncertain terms, it is not a good idea to go the other direction. That is not a good plan. Jonah's intention was to get as far away in the other way as he could go. And he had an experience like no one else. One of the other lessons from Jonah is nothing is wasted in the economy of God. God always has a plan. And Jonah, even though he had a message to Nineveh, had a great message to all the world as a type of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the city that Jonah came from was located only a couple of miles from Nazareth, about as close as Wonder Lake from McHenry, maybe even less? And it's interesting that Jonah, a prefiguring type of Christ, came from virtually the same town that Jesus was raised in in Nazareth. 
And when Jesus was speaking to the Jews of his day who were demanding a sign, he said, I tell you, you, you're a wicked generation seeking a sign. No sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the, in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and then he will rise again. There's no question that Jonah, in essence, came back from the dead. If God hadn't caused the fish to spit him out, he would have been dead for sure. And yet he prefigured the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said this, he said, When the day for your judgment comes, the Ninevites will rise up and testify against you. Because when the power of God came to them and they saw the, the, the power of the Lord, they repented. And Jesus, in essence, was saying, I, I, I'm standing among you. I'm the real deal. And, and you are not listening to my message. And they're going to stand and testify against you. Because the one who prefigured me preached to them and they repented. And I'm preaching to you, and you're not repenting. Jonah is the one book of the Bible that has been ridiculed by liberal scholarship more than any other book. That's kind of an oxymoron, liberal scholarship, but anyway. It's been ridiculed more than any other book. Because what a ridiculous mythological story that somebody could be swallowed up by a whale... And three days later, be spit up on the beach. And how absurd is that? Right up there next to a talking donkey and an iron axe head that floats on top of the water. I mean, the, the Bible is full of myths and Jonah is the biggest one of them all. But friends, when Jesus Christ was faced with the stubbornness of his generation... He quoted from this story as if it were absolute literal fact. No metaphor here. No parable. He said, just like Jonah was, even so I will be. And, and if you could stretch it a little bit there and say, well, that could have been allegorical. You take the next words out of Jesus' mouth and it ends all doubt. Because he said, Nineveh will rise up and testify. When they heard the message, they repented. That is a historical reference to an actual event. And in order to discredit the book of Jonah, you have to discredit Jesus Christ. And either make him stupid or a liar. And we know that he is neither. It is impossible to believe the truthfulness of Jesus Christ and deny the historical, literal truth of the book of Jonah. And so it is attested to very clearly in the New Testament as being actual fact by none other than Jesus himself. If that weren't enough, and if you needed other evidence, I mentioned to you the recorded incident of the whaling vessel off the Falcons, and there have been other similar stories reported over time. But the real message here is not whether or not 
uh, in actual uh, recorded history that we know of besides the Bible, which is actual recorded history. But anyway, uh, it's not the fact that it's happened out there where it can be testified to by people in recent days. The message of the book of Jonah from start to finish is God is always in control. God says go to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Tarshish. God hurls a wind on the sea. God orchestrates the outcome of the lots they cast. God prepares a fish. At the precise moment that it's ready, the fish is caused to regurgitate Jonah. God comes to Jonah, sends him to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. God causes a plant to grow overnight. God sends a worm and kills the plant overnight. God sends the wind to scorch Jonah and the sun. The point in all of this is God can do anything He wants to do to accomplish His will. Friends, this is the God who created the world. This is the God of a virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God of the resurrection. Is there anything too hard for God? And we can take away from this message this morning that although God may not frequently suspend the rules of nature and part the physics of the universe, He certainly can. It's not beyond His ability to do anything He needs to do to accomplish His purposes in your life and mine. We have a sovereign God. And when we follow Him, or when we don't, He can do whatever is necessary to accomplish His will. We can take comfort in that. We can rest in a God who can do anything that He needs to do to get His point across. I think that the central theme of the book of Jonah is God's love for lost people. And I said I would come back to verse chapter 2, verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake the grace that could be theirs. That's a difficult verse to translate, and the New American Standard Bible comes down in a different way. It implies that the burden is on the individual to be faithful. Those who pursue idols lack faithfulness. Well, that's kind of self-evident. But in the midst of the context, it seems to me that the NIV, and I looked at it in the Septuagint and in the Hebrew, and it seems to me that the NIV has captured the essence. Those who regard emptiness and lies is is actually what's literally there. Forsake the grace that could be theirs. I think that's the key verse. It's a key verse for Jonah. It's a key verse for Nineveh. It's a key verse for Israel. And it's a key verse for us. If you pursue emptiness and vanity and idolatry, 
you forsake the grace that could be yours. Jonah didn't have to suffer any of this mess. He could have just simply been obedient and followed the Lord and enjoyed the revival had he had a right spirit. Nineveh did forsake their idols and turn back to God, and God gave them mercy. The nation of Israel ultimately pursued their course of idolatry and forsook the grace that could have been theirs. Are you, perchance, forsaking the grace that could be yours this morning? Because you're chasing the wind and pursuing emptiness and vanity. Father, I pray that you would drive the message of Jonah home to us very clearly. That we would be those who when we hear your voice, we turn to you and go with you. That we would not be among those who turn away to emptiness and idolatry. Forsaking grace that could be ours in abundance. For in serving you and following you, there is great blessing. And Father, we thank you this morning for the great love that you have for all people. There are none so wicked, so evil, and so violent that they are beyond your grace. There are none that are beyond your reach, for your arm is not short that it cannot save. Everyone who hears your voice and responds in repentance can come home to you and you will be merciful and kind. And so I pray, Father, that we would be ambassadors of the truth. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who, as they have heard the story of Nineveh, realize that they're in a place of rebellion, will you touch their hearts? Will you, even this moment, by your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself? Open their eyes. Give them faith to believe. Give them the grace of repentance to turn from their sin. And in this moment, a willingness to reach out to Jesus and to take the salvation that he offers to them. Freely, because he has already paid the price. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.